Okay, Abby gets wounded. Who gets wounded in his front? Yes, young Seward. Young Seward, not old man Seward. Young Seward. Yeah, what a jerk. <laughs> yeah, um, even even Malcolm, who's not exactly the most pleasant person in the kingdom, is is a little is a little off put by that. Um, okay, um, the infinity by two types of infinity according to Aristotle. No, nice guess. Okay. Um, time and change. <laughs> <laughs> I can, I can, I wait, 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 Joy? A priori and, uh, and not a priori? <laughs> <laughs> a, a, priori. a priori and priori. <laughs> no, see, you would actually have had to have done the reading. I guess that was unfair of me. Yeah. <laughs> I did the reading. I did the reading. <laughs> okay. I absorbed what Aristotle was on. <laughs> okay, you know that Herodotus, the Greek historian, talks about um, when you see the Phoenicians, and um, he's really the first historian, and he talks about rituals they have where um, they throw what the Greeks used to make ropes, that is hemp, into fires, and then they hang out around the fires, and then they act drunk, and Herodotus thinks this is really interesting. Um, so I, whether Aristotle ever hung out around a Phoenician fire, I don't know. Um, Kenny. Um, this, I may be conflating this with something else, um, but was the infinity of, um, like the, the, essentially the naturals, so like an infinity that goes on to forever, mm -hmm. and an infinity that is like something that's infinitesimally small. Yeah. So he talks about infinity by addition and infinity by division. Wow. Did anyone get an answer? Yeah, Kenny did. That was good enough. Well, recursion, you might be able to argue, is like... Addition and division are math, so I'm right. Right, okay. Or, you know, philosophy. Ooh, dude. Infinity by philosophy. Okay, no. <laughs> See that, <laughs> and you thought he would be hurt. Um, said that the only two things that are infinite are the universe and human stupidity. Yeah, yeah. And Oscar Wilde said there is no sin except stupidity. Yeah. Well, must be election season. Okay. So infinity by addition would mean that you have an infinite amount of something, and that it goes on forever. Um, infinity by division would mean that you have a finite amount of something, but you can subdivide it infinitely. So for Aristotle, those are two things that you have to distinguish from each other. Um, talking about time, for example, you could say that what Augustine is saying, what Aristotle is also saying, is that time does not present to you infinity by addition. That is, it will not last forever. It hasn't lasted forever. It has boundaries, or if it doesn't have boundaries, at least it isn't infinite in magnitude. However, um, there's, that doesn't prove that time can't be subdivided infinitely and that you can't talk about infinitesimals. So the difference between uh, extremely infinity which gets larger and larger and infinity which gets smaller and smaller, that's what infinitesimals are about. Um, that's a <laughs> distinction that Aristotle is already working out. And it's a really important distinction because infinity Large infinities for Aristotle only take the form of possibility. You could always have more of something. But it doesn't mean that that more already exists. It means that it's available if you need it. It's much harder to think about um, and get a good theory of infinity by division, of subdividing things into smaller and smaller pieces. Um, it does feel that that's something we can do to space. One of the things we're going to um, soon get to counter, I also want to give you your paper topic. Notice the singular. Um, but when we get to contour, one of the um, questions that's going to arise in contour is contour 
I told you this the first day of class, Cantor asks how many finite numbers there are. Um, in a way, that's a really brilliant Aristotelian question because um, the very idea that you have the category intentionally given of finite numbers, the set of finite numbers, the fact that that category um, is one that we can think means that the highest finite number is going to be um, in that set, the largest number in that set, if you have a set of all the finite integers, the largest number in that set is also going to be the cardinality of that set. If I give you the set of numbers from 1 to 10, how many elements in that set? 10. And you don't have to count in order to know that. You just know that it's all and only the integers from 1 to 10, and that those integers have the really interesting property that they are self-counting, that they tell you where they lie um, within um, or, or where they would be measured against other elements in that set. This turns out to be, I read this recently, it's actually pretty fascinating, this turns out to be um, a symbolism that chimps can learn. Um, they can learn to count using numerals. And when they do, it changes how they behave. Um, there's a chimp named Sheba where there are really fascinating experiments about what Sheba learned about other chimps and other human beings and how to interact with them when she learned to use numerals from 1 to 10, which is what she learned. So, if you say, so the point, though, is if you say the numerals from 1 to 10, then the, um, if you say I'm giving you that set, it doesn't mean that the set comes to you as 1, 2, 3, et cetera, to 10. It could come to you as 7, 9, 4, 10, 5, et cetera. It doesn't have to come to you in that order, just as if you were to take, let's say, 10 playing cards from the ace to the 10 of spades and shuffle them. Um, if you knew there were 10 cards, if you knew there were no face cards, if you knew they were all spades, and if you knew all the cards were different, right? Not that many things to know. It sounds like it is, but it isn't. If you knew all those things and someone gave you the top card from those 10 cards, you would know how many cards in the remainder of those 10 cards were higher than that card and how many were lower. Um, when you cut for a deal and you cut to the ace of spades, you know you're very likely to be the dealer because you know that there are not going to be very many cards um, as high. And if you say spades is the highest suit, then you know you've won. So the same with sets. Sets don't come in order, but the, if you have a set of numerals, if you have a set of playing cards, if you have a set of ranks of any sort, then you can pick out the element which is the highest rank in that set. So with the numerals, if you take the set of finite numerals, then the cardinality of that set, the number of elements in that set, is also the highest number in that set, the highest numeral that you'll find. It might be the first numeral in the set. It might be, depending on how it's dealt to you, it might be the 125 trillion billionth. But whatever the highest number in that set is, um, that's also how many elements are in that set. So Contour said, okay, if we take the finite numerals and then we compare it to the set of whole numbers, so counting numbers, one, two, three, dot, 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 as high as you want to go, by definition, there's a last numeral in that because it's got a finite number of members. Um, that finite number of members um, means that you're not talking about the actual existence of something infinite. Now Contour says, but what if we start with zero, recognizing that one actually is getting you above the default state of zero. So we add zero to that set. So now there's one more element than the number, than the highest number in the set of finite numerals. That means that there is now not a finite number of elements in that set because we've gone, the first set contained all the finite numerals and therefore the highest number in that set was the cardinality of that set. The highest number in that set, the highest finite number also tells you how big a finite set can be. A finite set can be no bigger 
than the cardinality of the set of finite numerals. So, says Contour, now let's just add zero to that set, and we break through into infinite sets. So the numbers 0, 1, 2, 3, dot, 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 that's infinite, says Contour. The set 1, 2, 3, dot, 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 that's finite. Now, how is it that adding one numeral at the bottom, at the base, at the start, but it, the ordering doesn't matter, but how is it that adding one numeral gets you from the finite to the infinite? It's a huge, it's one small step for a mathematician, but one giant leap for mathematics. It's a huge leap from the finite to the infinite, which you get by just putting zero into the set which is as into a set which is as large as a finite set can be. Now you break through into the infinite. Now if that seems suspect, that is, this is the place, and part of the point of this course is to see that this is the place, where math and philosophy can't be disentangled from each other, where lots of mathematicians and lots of scientists want to say philosophy is hazy and BS, but math and science deal with um, realities and things that um, you can simply um, use logic to know things about. Philosophy is about belief and more or less good or more or less bad or more or less convincing or emotional or um, elegant or aesthetically beautiful, arguments about what you should believe. But really it's not about knowledge. Philosophy is what you can never know about. Um, whereas math you should be able to know about. But here's a place where, you're, where it's really hard to think about the math without having a philosophical position on what the math means, and very hard to think about the philosophy without having some sense of um, what the math is doing to your ideas of philosophy. Now what Aristotle would say is the idea, Contour's original idea, that um, the set of counting numbers is, a set, is finite. It's a set of finite numbers that that's right that you can always find a higher finite number. The simplest proof that you can find a high, higher finite number is take the highest finite number, if there is one, call it n, add 1 to it. Ah, but now we have a higher finite number, n plus 1. So the simplest proof that there are no end to finite numbers. That's Aristotle on the idea that infinity is potential, not actual. That you can take any number, and when you need to, you can add one to it. So that's infinity by addition in the sense that you'll always add things, but it's a denial that the fact that you can always add more to any number means that there is something in some other ideal platonic realm which is an infinite number of numbers. Aristotle doesn't think that's true. Aristotle doesn't think anything goes on infinitely, even though possibilities go on indefinitely. Now, the word indefinite and the word infinite will often be confused with each other. Or another way to say this is that people will often say, don't say infinite, say indefinite. Because if you say infinite, it sounds like it's super large. If you say indefinite, it means we can't say where the boundary is. Notice how close those words are to each other, though. They all come from a root meaning the end. Finitude. Finish. <coughs> fin in French. Um, where things come to an end. The, when you define something, you delineate its borders. So to define something is to give its borders, to show where that thing comes to an end. What's definite is something that has definite borders. What's finite is something that comes to an end. So the definite and the finite, it may sound like they're antonyms to each other, but they're not. It's not the definite and the finite. They're actually more like synonyms. The definite and the finite means clear boundaries, clear borders. The indefinite and the infinite both suggest that you can't say where the boundaries and borders are, but they have different connotations. 
The indefinite is you just can't say. You can't say when it is that, to use one of the, one of, um, the most famous classical examples, when if you drop a grain of sand <laughs> on the floor and then drop another grain of sand and then drop a third, when you go from having three or four or five grains of sand to having a heap of sand, um, that's an indefinite transition. There is no single grain of sand that turns some discrete grains of sand, three, four, five, six grains of sand, into a bunch of sand, a heap of sand. Um, so there, what you say is, sure, there are lots of indefinite things in the universe, lots of things, mathematicians sometimes call these fuzzy sets, um, lots of things that don't have very clear-cut boundaries, but that's not the same thing as the infinite. So Aristotle wants to say that numbers are indefinite. It's not that there is simply a highest number and, and after that all numbers are infinite. He wants to say you can have as many numbers as you want. There's no definite limit to the number of numbers. But that's not the same thing as there being an infinite number of numbers. Contour begins by seeming to agree with that, but then he leads us into this paradise that Hilbert says no one will ever lead us out of, um, Contour's paradise, which is um, the paradise of the infinite. Now, Contour's big question, this is something that um, we're going to get to um, later on also, but Contour's big question is if you divide the number line between 0 and 1, an infinite number of times. If that is to say, you mark out every single point on that number line, will there be more points between 0 and 1 than there are integers from 0 to infinity? Or will they be the same number of points? Or is it even possible that there will be fewer points between 0 and 1 then there are integers from 0 to infinity. So I wasn't going to do this, but it's very simple to show that the, there's a one-to-one -one correspondence. Very simple. And this is, by the way, how Contour shows things. So look and see, behold and see. Thank God there's chalk. No, it's still here. Um, so how do you show that there is a one-to-one -one correspondence between the rational numbers and the integers. Oh, the rational numbers. The rational numbers. I thought you were saying the real I was, but now we're going to talk simply about the rationals. Okay. So what you want to do is talk about every rational number between 0 and 1. <clears throat> yeah? Uh, every rational number could be a denominator under the number 1. Well, no, not every rational number can. Not if you're going to do it as whole numbers. I mean, every integer can. Okay, so what you can do is what you say is, and this is what Contour does, is he says, okay, here is the set, one, two, three, dot, 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 infinity. That's, those are the numerals that we want to put into one-to-one -one correspondence with the rational numbers between zero and one. That is what are called, what kind of fractions? Proper fractions. So, um, that's probably, never mind that. Um, okay, so how do you tell whether things are in one-to-one -one correspondence? We talked about this a little bit. Yeah, you do that, and then, yay! Yeah. What you basically do, here's the test for one-to-one -one correspondence. If any reasonable person with um, reasonable um, reasoning powers would come to the same answer as you about um, how to put two things into one-to-one -one correspondence, then you would know that there is such a possibility as one-to-one -one correspondence. So if I ask you all to write down the third even natural number, that is don't count zero because that's a whole number, not a natural number, but the third even natural number, you would all write down the number even, even. Six. Is that a Ten. Like, don't some people say the natural numbers are zero? 
it's a, this is definition. It doesn't matter. If you want to say the natural numbers start with zero, I mean, I don't think people do say that, but um, contour might have. But if you want to say the natural numbers start with zero, you'd have a whole lot of history that, of, of civilizations not starting with zeros, um, including the Romans and the Hebrews and the Greeks to contend with um, because they all started with one. Um, but if you redefine it so the natural numbers start at zero, you, you can just um, fix it elsewhere. Um, but here in America, we learned that the natural numbers are one, two, three, et cetera. Um, so the third natural number is one, two, three. Ah, three. Um, the third even number, you would go two, four, six. Two, four, six. So everyone. So if you know this procedure, if I give you a number, you can tell me. If I give you a num, if I give you the number n, you can tell me the nth even number. If I say this is the nth even number, you can tell me what number it is on a list of numbers. That is what n is. If I say what is the fifth even number, you will say? 10. 10. If I say what even number is 20, is it the first, the second, the third, the fourth, you will say? The tenth. Yeah. Yeah. So that's easy. As long as there's a very easy procedure, doesn't have to be very easy, but we have a very easy procedure for going back and forth. We've established a very easy procedure for going back and forth between even numbers and whole numbers. And everyone will agree once this procedure um, is established, you could decode someone who wrote to you in code this way. So if someone wrote to you in a code in which the only numbers in the code, the code consisted of, um, of a bunch of numbers between 2 and 52, and all the numbers were even, you could easily decode that simple code by dividing all the numbers in half so that you would have 1 through 26, and then you would say, so 2 would be what letter of the alphabet in that case? A. 4 would be B, etc. It's, it's just a way of coding and decoding. Anything that allows you to encode and then decode so you get back to where you encoded that's one-to-one -one correspondence. Coding requires one-to-one -one correspondence. Okay, so the question Contour asked himself is, can I put the natural numbers into one-to-one -one correspondence with the even numbers? The answer, duh. That's <coughs> actually the person who invented that sarcastic duh. A lot of people don't know that. It's because it's not true. Um, but that's how it goes. One gives you two. Going the other way, two gives you one. 2 gives you 4, going the other way, 4 gives you 2. 3 gives you 6, going the other way, 6 gives you 3. So Contour said, good. Now, let's talk about rational numbers between 0 and 1. And so he says, okay, it really depends. Just as I wrote down the even numbers like this, 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, dot, 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 when I could have, instead, if I were an idiot, but still legitimately, I could have said, I'm going to do all the twos first. So I would do 2, 12, 22, 32, dot, 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 till I ran out of numbers ending in 2, after which I'd go 4, 14, 24, dot, dot, dot. He could have written the even numbers down that way. Um, so you'd have 2, 4, 6, 16, 26, 8, 18, 28, and um, let's say um, 10, 20, 30. That gives you all the even numbers too, obviously. But you can't see how you would put that into one-to-one -one correspondence with 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. Because if I asked you what, the, um, what number this corresponded to in 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, you would say, well, I would have to figure out how many of these ending with 2 existed first. There'd be an infinite number of those, and then there'd be infinity plus 1, infinity plus 2. Help, I don't know what to do. So part of it is that you have to find a way to list the set, the infinite set, that you want to put into one-to-one co one -one correspondence with the natural numbers. And it's very easy to list the even numbers 
not in this stupid way that I just came up with, but in a more intuitive way, 2, 4, 6, 8, 10. And then we'll know that 10 is in one-to-one -one correspondence with 5, and 5 is in one-to-one -one correspondence with 10, right? Okay, so the question now is, can I do the rationals between 0 and 1 in a way which will be make it just as easy for people to count and to know, for example, what number you should put four-fifths into one-to-one -one correspondence with. Now, at first this seems hard because you could say, well, there's one-half, one-third, one-fourth, one-fifth, etc., which is what Greg was suggesting, but then where does two-thirds come in that? Because first you'd have to go to one, one-half, one-third, one-fourth, one-fifth, one-sixth, blah, 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 one over infinity. Now, um, two-thirds, two-fourths, two-fifths, two-sixths, two-sevenths, three-thirds we can skip, but three-fourths, three-fifths, three-sixths, etc. So if you try to write down all the fractions between zero and one, if you write them down in the wrong way, just as we would be wrong to write 2, 12, 22, 32, dot, 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 before getting to 4, 14, 24, 34, dot, dot, dot. If you write them down in the wrong direction, you're lost. So you have to figure out a good way to write them down. So contour does. Does anyone know? Kenny. Um, isn't it uh, such that you have um, <clears throat> 1 over 1 and then... Uh, 1 over 2, and then uh, 2 over 3, and 1 over 3. Well, you go for, if you're going to start with 1 over 1, which oh, you don't okay. have yeah, to, sure. then, you would then, then do 2 over 2. Okay, yeah. Then you do 1 over 3, 2 over 3, and 3, three over 3. In fact, um, since we're only talking about between 0 and 1, we don't need the 1. But, um, so we could just do it like this. So we write, we have a procedure, and it's a triangulating procedure. We write 1 over 2, then we write 2 over 2, and we realize we don't need that because that equals 1, so that's not part of the number. So we immediately erase it. Under the 1 half we write 1 third, we write 2 thirds, we're not going to write 3 thirds. We now write 1 fourth, are we going to write two-fourths? No, because we already have it as one-half. Oh. So we'll write three-fourths. Gamer. And we'll skip four-fourths because that's one. What do we write here? One-fifth. Here? Two-fifths. Here? Here? Four-fifths. And we don't write five-sixths here. We'll do one more row. One sixth. No two sixths. Nope. Five, five, no three sixths. No. Nope. Five, five sixths. Six. Five sixths. Etc. One seventh, two sevenths. With the primes, we're going to write them all, by the way. Right? Yeah. Everyone so sees that. Did, did this, this so, what Contour now says is okay, so if I ask you in this order, what the second fraction, the second rational number in this order is, everyone will say it's a third. And if I ask you what does a third, what number is a third, everyone will say it's the second. If I ask you what number is a fourth, people may have to count, but they'll say one, two, three, oh, a fourth is the fourth number in this set, and the fourth number in the set is one-fourth. So what you can see is you now have a, a way of encoding and decoding all the rational numbers between 0 and 1. So there are as many rational numbers as there are between 0 and 1, as there are natural numbers between 1 and infinity. So contour, that's one of the first things contour showed, was that there were as many rational numbers between 0 and 1 as between 1 and infinity. Yeah? So 
So why bother with two-thirds and three-fourths? I Because mean, those are rational numbers between 0 and 1. Right, but why put them right there? I mean, I can think of another way where you can show that they're How? the same. So we have one-half at first, yeah. and then one-third, yeah. then one-fourth, then yeah. one-fifth. And so what number is two-thirds? Well, I mean, it's way at the end. Yeah, but you, don't, you have to be able to say exactly which number it is. If you can't say exactly which number it is, you don't have one-to-one -one correspondence. I see. There, it has to pick out a number uniquely both ways. That's why we can say that the number 100 is the 50th even number, but only if we write the even numbers in a certain order, 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, rather than 2, 12, 22, um, uh, 32, et cetera. Going one, writing it as 1 half, 1 third, 1 fourth, that's the equivalent of writing the even numbers as 2, 12, 22, 32, getting to the end of all the numbers ending with 2, and then starting out on the numbers ending with 4. Here you'd be getting at the, to the end of all the numerators with 1, and then you'd start out with the numerators um, that were 2. And that would not get you where you needed to go. But the point is, there is a way. It's not every way will allow you to see the one-to-one -one correspondence, but there is at least one way to see the one-to-one -one correspondence. So what Contour has shown, then, is that there's certainly an infinity by division between 0 and 1. And that infinity by division can be put into one-to-one -one correspondence with infinity by addition. That is, adding one to whatever integer you get, however arbitrarily high it is. Okay, then the question Contra is going to ask that we're not going to answer today is, what if you add the irrational numbers? So, at first it might seem, this won't be true, but at first it might seem, let's add roots of 2. Let's start with the square root of 2. And then the question is, do we want to say the square root of 3, the square root of 4, but we already know what that is, but the square root of 4, square root of 5, like this. That seems to be in one-to-one -one correspondence with the integers, the square roots, all the square roots, right? Yeah. Or the positive square roots. But then we also want to add cube roots. root of 5, etc. And now it becomes a little bit harder to figure out the ordering that we should put these irrationals in. Because we might want to do square root of 2, 3, 4, 5, all the way to infinity, and then work on the cube roots. We can't do but it would be the same problem as going um, 2, 12, 22, 32, etc. So instead, we might want to do square root of 2, cube root of 2, fourth root of 2, fifth root of 2. But what happens? It's the same problem again you'd have to get to the infinite root of 2, and then start working on the square root of 3, the cube root of 3, etc. So there isn't, at first glance, an obvious way to list all the different roots of a number. Mm, sort of. It doesn't seem that there's an obvious way to list all the different roots of a number. Not that these are between 0 and 1, either. But if you put 1 over those things. So 1 over the square root of 2, 1 over the square root of 3. We don't have to think about that now because all we're looking at are the denominators. Doesn't seem an obvious way that you can list them that everyone will agree, yes, the fifth number in this list is the cubed root of 2, or 1 over the cubed root of 2. Or 1 over the cubed root of 2, everyone can tell it's the fifth number on the list. There doesn't seem an obvious way that you can do that. So Contour spent 10 years trying to figure out a way to do it. Um, and then he decided maybe he should try to prove that you couldn't do it. But we won't do that right now. But that's just a way to see how infinity by addition and infinity by division are actually related to each other in Aristotle. So that was question zero on your quiz. What are some of the reasons? What were some of the answers you gave for relevance of Macbeth, Amanda? In reference to the email. Um, okay, Amanda's email. That's answer number one. I'll Anything? Explain it. <laughs> yeah, I know. Go ahead. Um, in Act Four, 
before when he's with the three witches, they show him the procession of eight kings. The last king has eight glass. I got that one. And in the glass, Macbeth can see another procession of kings, the last one of whom also holds a glass. And in that glass is another procession of kings with another glass. And that goes on and on and on. Right. And it goes on. Do you remember how far it goes on? They bear it out until the... Anyone? What are you, not all English majors who've memorized Shakespeare? <laughs> to the edge of doom is Macbeth's um, phrase. They bear it down to the edge of doom. Exactly. Hence the um, great graphic Doom Patrol novels. Yeah, good. Um, so you compare that to the Olive. That is... It's a representation which contains within it a representation like the original representation which contains within it. Um, the uh, Morton or Quaker Oats boxes work that way. Um, there's a Quaker Oats, um, or at least they used to. There's a Quaker Oats box in which you see um, a young girl sitting on a rail fence and you know what she's holding up? A Quaker Oats box. And what's on the Quaker Oats box? Yeah. So it goes on forever. Um, French literary theorists love this. They call it a mise en abîme, a placing yourself into the abyss. A lot of commercials have used that trope. Yeah, it's, it's a kind of fun trope. It's a little bit what Inception is about. If Inception <coughs> really had the courage of its convictions, it could go on forever and we could never get out of um, the dream world. But yeah, okay. So um, you see something like that in Macbeth. Um, it's also what happens when mirrors reflect each other, when mirrors face each other. Do you know, by the way, how big your image in a mirror is? Has anyone ever asked you this? So, sorry? No, no, any flat mirror, not a concave or a convex mirror, but if you look at yourself in a mirror, um, and if you could, with a laser pen or some kind of um, ink-filled water gun, um, outline the top of your head and where you saw your feet on the mirror from where you were standing, if you then walked up to it, what? Oh, it's gonna answer. Answer. Okay, isn't it half? Exactly half your size. Oh my God. Your image in your mirror, the image, the virtual image in the mirror that you see is exactly half your size. What? Uh, try it out. You need a friend. You need to either get a water gun with indelible ink and be willing to pay Brandeis for ruining their mirrors or get a friend and tell them where to put tape. That is, look at yourself in a mirror and get a friend to put tape. Tell them, you know, up or down. Yeah, there's the top of my head. There's the bottom of my feet. Put the tape there and then walk up to where the tape is. Yeah. Would your size uh, in the mirror change depending on how far away you are, though? Yeah. So how could it just be half your, half your size of blood? It's always... How is that going to work, actually? <laughs> Wait. No, I've just confused myself. This is unfortunate. <laughs> Got him. Got him. Yeah, you did. Yeah, but it will look, what you will see will look exactly half the size that you are. Wait, no. Yeah, it, that, this is what will happen. No, it won't. Wait a second. Wait. Yeah. What? Yeah. Yeah, but there is an elegant way of putting it, and I'm not now. I'm not quite remembering it. Yeah. No, it's not. But I have to. I have to think about it. I, I, we have other substitutes, so I can't think about it right now. No. If we just break space. No. If you're your way away from the mirror, it'll be half your size. Does that make sense? Right. It's not. Yeah. It's not. No. Obviously, the farther away you get, the smaller your image in the mirror is going to look. Yeah. Um. I think that's obvious. Um. Obviously. No, I'm trying to think. It might. Now, I, I'm going to have to remember exactly how this works because I'm clearly getting it wrong. But oh, it's, it's okay, I think I have it. Okay. If you were to take, if you were to take something like, take yourself, that is 
or a model of yourself, a cardboard cutout of yourself, <coughs> and put it up against the mirror, and then stand back where you were standing, and then tra trace out on the cardboard cutout what you, what you see in the mirror. The trace of what you see in the mirror would be exactly half the size of the... How far away would you go? Yeah, that's right, that's right. Yeah, that is right. That's exactly right. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. That's what you're saying is right, but I'm trying to figure out how, how you do that just with the mirror itself, because because that that is correct. It's a projection if you, of you onto the mirror versus a projection. Oh, of, oh so okay. couldn't you just trace yourself standing right against the mirror and then move back? And, oh, no, <laughs> got it there for a second. Someone else would have to trace you against the mirror. If yeah, if the, if if you went up to a mirror and traced your outline against the mirror, but there is a there's a more elegant way of saying this. If you went up to a mirror and traced your outline against the mirror, then no matter how far away from the mirror you stand, your reflection will be exactly half the size of your out of your outline. Because the outline also looks smaller as you walk as you step away. So. <laughs> it is, it is, be, but, be, but your angle is such that because you're looking down. Why don't we have a classroom with a mirror in it? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, exactly, exactly. All right, a second way that Macbeth is about the issues in this class, yes. Macbeth appears in the library of Babel. Is that what you put down? All right, good. So, nice. Well, I have a few other copies that are very close to the question. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. Yeah. Yes. probably totally wrong. I said Macbeth was infinitely doomed from the start because the witch's prophecy of Banquo's king becoming king. So, it's infinitely doomed now. Okay. All right. I kind of pushed it. Okay, Joy. Well, Lady Macbeth goes insane, and after the class and all these different kinds of infinity, it's going to happen. <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> um, Angel. Um, the quote that I kind of remembered was like at the end of Act 1, Scene 6, when Lady Macbeth says, And I feel now the future in the instant. I feel now the future in the instant. What does she mean by that? Is that the quote you put down? Yeah, the, the how did you put it down? Did you get it right? I, I put, I think, and I feel the future in the instant. I forgot the name. Okay, so what does that mean? How dare you? What is she saying when she says that? Angela, say more. What is, what is she saying? I mean, she's basically, like, that's the whole unsex me here speech. It comes right after that, where she's like, you know, give me the strength to be evil, basically. And she's talking, yeah. is she talking to Macbeth? Yeah, Macbeth comes in. Oh, it's basically she's saying, I don't know, some sort of rapture that she's feeling from mm -hmm. whatever his letters are saying about him killing Duncan. Yeah, so, but explain her metaphor. So what does that mean, to feel the future in the instant? I mean, the way that I took it was to connect it to Augustine mm -hmm. and to connect it to the idea of what is time, how you yeah. feel the future in the present. Uh -huh. Are they different? Does one exist and one doesn't? And that's okay, so feeling, how I would spin it if I actually thought it through. Yeah, so feeling the future in the instant is somehow feeling that this very moment is, you, you could actually connect that to the idea of the Aleph, that the entire future is focused on this moment, that if you handle this moment right, you will own the whole future, you will affect, it might be a fulcrum with which you can leverage the entirety of the future. But it is like Augustine, it is a moment of anticipation in which everything that's to come somehow seems compressed into this instant. Um, yeah, Amanda. I'm also connected to uh, Pascal about the, how we spend our, you know, we never live in the present because we spend thinking about the future, trying yeah. to achieve good. a certain good. state that we expect in the future, but we never achieve it because when we get there, we're still planning ahead. Yeah, yeah, because it's always the future that's mattering, and yet we're always only existing in the present. Good. Um, yeah, Abby. Oh, yeah. Nice. Oh, yeah. I didn't actually put that down. Okay, but yeah. That, oh, of course. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> um, Joy, were you going to say? I get the millions of a point extra credit. Yeah, I know. You do. Yeah, yeah. Joy, what were you going to say? 
about the, I mean, just referencing Pascal, but Pascal makes so many interesting points about this, um, about seeing how we live as if, like, this, the instant, like, that the, 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 we, we are always in this infinitesimal part of time, and yet we always thinking about the other parts of time, which is really important. Yeah, okay, good. No, that, I, that's right. That's <coughs> Pascal and Augustine and Shakespeare are actually thinking similar things. Um, Isabel. Yeah, what about it? Yes, the final syllable. One billion two hundred forty-three million six hundred and forty-one. Oh, that's it. One. Okay. Does everyone remember that speech? That's the that was one of the speeches that back in the day, when people learned Greek by the time they were in fifth grade, you had to memorize. Um, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time, and all our yesterdays. Anyone? No. Have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief. Candle, life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the his hour upon the stage, and then is heard no more. It is a tale full of So, what great American novelist got a title from that speech? Faulkner. What book? Sound of the Fury. Yeah. Yeah, good. As well. Such a love hate relationship. Okay. Yeah, so somehow if, if the ghosts exist, then the past does become something real, which haunts you, which isn't gone for good. Um, go back to the word syllable. Do you remember we talked about the word syllable earlier in yeah. this course? When? Do you remember, Jared? Well, we talked about um, when when we understand the se- when we were talking about words and sentences. Yeah. And like, when do we? When does the meaning come? Does it come at this syllable or another? Syllable? Right. Okay. Good. So that well, even if you say the word syllable, it doesn't mean syllable when you say sill, because you might be saying silla or something. Um, it doesn't mean the word syllable when you say ul or when you say bull. Syllable. Ub-bull. Syllable. Um, that somehow the syllable is meaningful. Each syllable is meaningful, but not by itself. Each syllable is meaningful only um, by connecting to another syllable. Um, yeah? And wouldn't the word syllable just be meaningful when the other person hears it? Well, but you can hear yourself say it, right? In other words, you can talk to yourself. I frequently do, um, especially when I'm driving. Sorry? Yeah, and to be is to be perceived. Um, but yeah, so, you, so the word syllable, it takes on meaning when it's heard, when it's understood. But it's not somehow... Okay, so, so at the thing that I was fishing for about... Yes, Abby, say more. Say it. Yeah, well, her poem ends with saying that it's oh, as yeah. different as syllable from sound. So it's kind of like giving hope to this whole idea of there being no meaning with everything repeating itself. Because if there is meaning, because things do mean stuff, but they don't always mean stuff. Because if they always meant stuff, then they wouldn't. But you need a mind in order to actually understand what's happening. All right, good. So that the word syllable um, in the Dickinson poem, remember the brain... Any, can anyone recite it? The brain is just the weight of God. <coughs> for half them. Pound for pound. Then there's something about the sky. And they will differ. Yeah, the whole poem is the brain is wider than the sky. Um, for hold them blue to blue. Um, the, uh, the one, the other. No, sorry. The brain is wider than the sky. Um, for hold them side to side. The one the other will contain with ease and you beside. 
the brain is deeper than the sea. For hold them blue to blue, the one the other will absorb as sponges buckets do. The brain is just the weight of God. For um, heft them pound for pound. And they will differ, if they do, as syllable from sound. Now, notice Boom. that... Sorry? Boom. Boom, yeah. That's a, that, is that a syllable or a sound? Boom! Yeah. All right. So, yeah. that's a big question and we want to just sort of answer it quickly and say, oh, well, when, you know, I say I want, you know, to go to a movie and someone hears me and they respond to me and they say, okay, I get, I, you know, I understand what you're saying, let's go. Um, there's no precision in, the, in that sort of, um, in that sort of analysis of meaning. And we can't, and the, the fact is that maybe we can't get a precision because if we say, you know, it is when they got exactly what I meant by it. Yeah. Well, you know, these things come about from such a complex foundation of of our own meaning. It doesn't only mean if I say I want to see a movie, and I mean I want to, you know, and I have all these things packed into it. Is it only fully understood by this other person if they got all of the background yeah. things that have been packed? Like, no, we don't want to have to have this burden of communication be that you have to understand every single small detail that went into everything yeah. that we have, but we also don't want to, you know, have a, have like a um, poverty of meaning and just, and just keep it yeah. as, as in each word, like you understand the word I, you understand the word want, so it's more complex and than I think just allowing it to be a subjective when we, in a pragmatic sense, that when we all understand what we're talking about and we can proceed um, or we can do, the, do an action or, or a behavior or something. No, that's exactly right. But what Dickinson is doing and what I think she's actually thinking of Macbeth, um, so that's one reason to bring them together. It's not just, oh, look, they both talk about syllables. Um, is, but the, Dickinson's genius in that line, and they will differ if they do a syllable from sound, is, okay, syllable goes with brain, and sound goes with God, right? It's the brain that interprets sounds as syllables. Um, God, if he exists, may just be some kind of natural, um, the natural, the sheer natural fact of existence. But the brain makes meaning, sees meaning, imposes meaning, just one sec, into what exists. Um, notice that the sheer genius of what Dickinson does as a poet is that it really matters that syllable is not a monosyllable. That is, if there were a word meaning syllable that were, let's just say, schmared, and they will differ if they do as schmared from sound, um, the difference wouldn't come out. But because the word syllable is not a sound, but is a relationship among sounds. You can say that of the word sound too, but that would, that would um, be too literal-minded. But because the word syllable is a relationship among three different sounds, in a way that the word sound is not, the poem is describing the very thing that it does, which is to say to think, to understand, to parse, to process the word syllable. You have to see or hear or feel not only three different sounds, but that those sounds are connected to each other. Um, whereas to process the word sound, all you have to hear is the word sound. It's, that's a single sound. But syllable is a complex series of sounds. The brain word, right, the brain does that. The brain turns sounds into meanings. Um, Joy first, then Abby. Yes. Everything. We, um, it does not swallow us up. We, we conquer. Right. We are a reed 
as he puts it, one of the most fam- one of his most famous aphorisms: "Man is but a reed." the most, um, what is it, vulnerable and weakest thing in nature, but a thinking reed. And that is one of the most famous, you know, the famous definitions of man, it's always definitions of man until the late 20th century, um, is featherless biped. That's Plato's definition. Um, Turns out we're not the only featherless biped, but Plato didn't know that. Um, And a thinking reed is another one. Um, Abby. I just realized that also, I, like, I used to think of Macbeth as this inevitable thing where he just kind of bound to his destiny. But if you like understand the silver thing, mm-hmm. you realize that he kind of heard what the witches said, but he just like, Good. Could have yeah. totally differently. Yeah. And he was wrong, actually. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, what he didn't get was the difference between what he heard was um, no, every, what he heard was every man is born of a woman so no man can hurt me. Um, and he thought the phrase of woman born simply meant, was a definition of man. Man is that being born of woman. Um, and what he didn't get was that the stress was actually on woman. Um, I mean, excuse me, that the stress was actually on born, not on woman. He puts the stress on woman but not on born. Um, he gets the syllables wrong. Um, but again, notice that for poets like Shakespeare and Dickinson, the idea of syllables, that's what makes poems into poems. Um, poems are made of words. Words are made of monosyllables, you could say, that go together. But what makes a poem a poem is not any individual word, but it's the sequence and relationship of those words to each other. The simplest form of that I know you didn't think you'd be talking about this in this class, but the simplest form of this is poetic meter. So if you think of poetic meter, does everyone know what iambic pentameter is? I thought not. Iambic pentameter is, I know a lot of you do, but iambic pentameter is the meter that most um, major English poems are written in um, because it's a very simple meter that we tend to process fairly naturally. Um, and it's basically, it's da-da, 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 da-da. That's what a line of iambic pentameter sounds like. It's probably the most likely um, metrical combination that you would get in English, even in prose. So if you go to a restaurant and say, I'll take the special and a glass of beer, um, that's an iambic pentameter line. Um, when Ruth Bader Ginsburg... Um, was against the Supreme Court decision in Bush versus Gore that gave the presidency to Bush. Um, she very famously did not put at the end of her opinion what most people do when they dissent, which is the line, and therefore I respectfully dissent. Um, she simply wrote, I dissent. Um, she broke iambic pentameter, and therefore I respectfully dissent. That's iambic pentameter. In the original Total Recall, some of you may know, I haven't seen the, um, you've heard this, I haven't seen I haven't heard of it. the remake. So the original Total Recall, um, Arnold Schwarzenegger is on his knees on Mars, finally captured by Sharon Stone, who is pretending to be his wife but isn't. Um, she's actually an agent of evil. And um, she finally has him at her mercy. They're waiting for a spaceship to go back to Earth. And she is really, really pissed at him. Um, so she takes the opportunity to... Um, basically starts smacking him because he's powerless. What she does is, um, if you're offended by four-letter words, you shouldn't be in this class. Um, I'm just quoting a movie. Anyhow, she puts her hands together and she starts wailing on him and talking and she wails. And she says to him, you know how much I hate this fucking planet. And that is a perfect iambic pentameter line. Um, not intentionally so. It wasn't written by the scriptwriters. It wasn't, um, it wasn't improvised by Sharon Stone as iambic pentameter. But that's iambic pentameter is the meter that we convey how we feel with most efficiently in English. It just comes out naturally because that's how English words work. However, meter requires um, a relationship between syllables. Unstressed stress. You know how much I hate this planet. Um, And it has to be that alteration, that beat, that sense of rhythm. Rhythm needs syllables. You don't have a rhythm at any single moment. You only have it in the relation from one moment to another. 
So that is what Augustine is saying about time as well, that if you know the words of the psalm, if you know the words of a verse, it's you know it's to be, but you know what's coming. To be or not to be. And the fact that you know that there's going to be an altered alternation between one syllable and another is gives the meaning to each syllable, even as each syllable is giving meaning to the whole line. We're passing through the line in time. We're passing through the word in time, beat by beat, syllable by syllable. But no syllable as syllable stands alone. It is connected to the syllables around it. That for Augustine, that for Macbeth, that for Dickinson is an image of time. What we said about states, remember, when we were talking about Turing machines, what we said about states was you put a quarter in the really cheap Coke machine, and now the machine's in a different state. It's in a state that if you put a quarter into it, it gives you a Coke. Um, it wasn't in that state before you put the first quarter into it. The same is true for how syllables work. If I say, um, I want to, and stop right there, the word to, after I want to, um, could be a word in one of several states. It could be that I'm going to say, I want two slices of pizza. And then the word to there is that syllable, to, is in a different state confirmed by slices of pizza than it would be if it were, um, I want to go to this class tomorrow. So you, the word to doesn't tell you which of those it is. Um, or I want too much to have this class come to an end on time. Three uses of the word to, same syllable each time, except not the same syllable each time, because in fact, those syllables are sounds. It's the same sound each time, but different syllables and different states. So we, part of our perception of time is a perception of a different state now from the state at the next moment, from the state at the previous moment. OK, um, what your paper should be on, what you should do is read again, reread. I'm looking at the wrong book. Um, read all the Pascal, but read several times with particular care what Pascal has to say about what's called Pascal's wager. This is on page 121 of the Penguin Pensees. It's um, the um, number of this section is 418. Um, so read, it's about five pages long, 418. Begins infinity dash nothing. Um, Read what he has to say about the wager. Read, um, just trying to think if I want to tell you to read beyond that. Um, read what he has to say about the wager. He makes an argument for why you should believe in God. It's an argument based on cost-benefit analysis. Um, it's a very powerful argument. Yeah. If you don't find yourself converted into a Jansenist, if next Wednesday you don't come in and say, I'm quitting school in order to become a priest or a nun, explain why you're not. Babelfish argument. Sorry? Babelfish argument. Um, the closer you get to proving God, the closer he gets to not existing. Well. Because the closer you get to losing faith. Wait, explain why you don't believe Right, but also he says that if you don't believe Pascal God, gives you a, and then if you, you do come to the day of judgment, it's not going to harm you. Yeah. So, so Pas yeah, right. Pascal, Pascal is Pascal is giving a very, very well. That was just a jokey way of putting it. Pascal is giving a very powerful argument, or what seems like what he thinks is a knockdown, indisputable um, argument um, for why you should believe. Um, it's an absolutely original argument. It's never been made before. You know, most philosophical arguments have have been made before. 
um, the ontological proof for the existence of God. Um, Descartes thought he was making it, but Anselm had made it before, before him. Um, philosophical arguments don't change that much, but Pascal has an absolutely brand new argument um, for why you would be insane not to be um, an extremely observant Christian. Um, why it's insane, why the word he uses is fool, why you would be a fool not to do it. So um, if you're convinced, that's great, convince me, because I'm not. Try to figure out why I'm not convinced and convince me. If, as it's my experience, most people are not sufficiently convinced by Pascal's argument to change their lives utterly and completely, then how do you argue against him? How do you defend yourself against his argument? So take his argument really seriously. Yeah. But, it's, but I, think the, I think your paper is going to be your argument against Pascal. Um, but it's possible that it won't be. But I'm pretty sure that's what it will be. Yeah, you can write in your first person, in the first person. Okay, good. Yeah, you can use I.